0: The word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of a work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Alright, hi everyone. This is Darwin Messadu. Welcome to season three, episode eight of the Ickphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. As always, please like, subscribe, and follow us. We're at the Ickphrastic on Twitter and Instagram. And to check out all of the artwork we discuss, please visit darwindarko.com backslash Today's subject: Shirley Woodson has worked a lifetime to tell stories of the African-American experience through her figurative paintings. Beyond that, she is also a tireless arts educator, advocate, whose career spans over 60 years and counting. We'll get to know her a little bit better in a second, but first, let's get into some art news. Okay, so for a quick rundown on some of the, uh, some of these headlines here, I'm reading from Artnet News. Uh, let's see what well, we start off with. Uh, report urges removal of Chicago's Columbus sculptures. The result of a citywide community advised review of monuments has concluded that more than a dozen monuments and plaques, including all of, of the uh, of Chicago statues of Christopher Columbus, should be removed. Other items under examination in the report include sculptures that reinforce indigenous stereotypes and a plaque that commemorates the city's first white child. The art newspaper reports that uh check them out for the full story uh what else we got going on Orlando Museum interim director and board chair are out as the fallout continues over an exhibition of alleged Basquiat fakes at the Orlando Museum of Art I think we actually read this a couple months back uh interim director uh Luder Whitlock has announced his departure after less than two months in the role Meanwhile, the museum's board chair, Cynthia Brum, uh, Brumback, who faced criticism for her part in the show, will be replaced by Mark Elliott, effective immediately. That is in the art form. You can follow up there. What else we got going on? Art Gallery of New South Wales Expansion will spotlight Indigenous art. Okay, that's dope. Uh, what took you so long? <laughs> but uh, So when the Art Gallery of New South Wales Opens its $246 million uh, expansion in December. I guess they did the uh, conversion for us there. It will also reveal a full reappraisal of its 36,000 object collection. The presentation will include renewed focus on its 2,000 works of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, as well as New York, uh, new work by contemporary Indigenous artists responding to. The space that is in uh TAN. Uh, what is, what is TAN? That is uh the art newspaper, so that's where you can find more on that. And then the uh, movers and shakers spot, there is a uh, Steve Locke, he wins a Rappaport Prize. The upstate New York based artist has won the prestigious fifty thousand dollar prize given by the Deco- uh the Cordova. Sculpture Park and Museum, which celebrates an artist with significant creativity and vision. He will present a free lecture at the Cordova next spring. That was written up in the Boston in the Boston Globe. Uh, and they got a section here called For Art's Sake, and it's titled Author Jaffa's The White Album Heads to New York City. The artist's Golden Lion winning video work, a follow-up to his acclaimed 2016 piece, Love is the Message, Uh, The Message is Death, will be screened in New York City beginning on September 1st. The video combines a pair of eclectic uh, musical tracks with a series of provocative video segments that tackle thorny issues around race and violence. Critic Colony uh, Little wrote for Artnet News, This is the first time the work will be on view since its run at the Venice uh, Biennale back in 2019. Um, so you could follow you could find um, uh, He's on Twitter here. So uh, anamibia anamibia. So a-n-a-m-i-b-i-a on Twitter uh, for some promotional info there and That's that's pretty much it for the rundown um, I'm gonna read one main story Here uh, it's gonna take the bulk up at the time of the rest of the news But this is I found this kind of fascinating. So I thought I'd share it with you with you guys and It's titled, Business is Very Good for the Art World's Criminals, Forgers, and Frauds right now. This is a pretty long piece, so I'm going to skip around a little bit. But they begin. The last Friday in June began like a normal summer day in sunny Orlando, Florida. The weather was hot and sticky. Um, Obedient crowds filled into Disney World as if on a spiritual pilgrimage. At the Orlando Museum of Art, a much-hyped exhibition was in its final days. Built as a stash of previously unseen pieces by the late 80s star Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, Basquiat whose uh, neo-expressionist paintings sell for tens of millions of dollars, the Heroes and Monsters show of 25 artworks was to be a splashy coupe for the museum, a quiet regional ins- institution uh, unaccustomed to the national spotlight. After all, Basquiat's paintings are not only highly coveted, But his subversive start start as a graffiti artist, his crossover appeal, Madonna dated him, Uh, Jay-Z rapped about owning his doodle-like work, and his death from a drug overdose at the age of 27 uh, have made him a pop culture icon. Uh, Oma, uh, that's the Orlando Museum of Art, had banked on the show to raise its profile trumpeting the painting in the media and developing fundraising opportunities such as Basquiat's 1982 Heroes and Monsters ball replete with a DJ uh, a gift machine booth and a live art demo but in the middle of the of that june day a team of FBI agents arrived at oma with a search warrant agents proceeded to pack up the entire contents of the exhibition carting off the curated canvas Contraband, like so many sacks of heroin, as ejected uh, vis- uh, visitors gape through the museum's windows, straining to catch a glimpse of the action. The paintings, all 25 of them, were fake, the government alleged. That an accredited museum, even a modest one, could get swept up in a major forgery investigation in 2022 might come as a shock to many, but suspect works have become so common that just weeks earlier, a Palm Beach dealer had been charged with selling bogus Warhols uh, and Banskys and yet more Basquiat's from his galleries on Tony Worth Avenue. As Chris uh, McCaw, an agent with the FBI's art crime team tells Rob, Rob Report, whenever there's a fraud scheme or fakes and forgeries ring, if you become aware of two or three, multiply that by 10 at least. If a forger is skilled, They'll make twenty or fifty or a thousand. The sheer ubiquity of shams has altered his thinking. I've become skeptical whenever I see a new piece of art. McCall adds, "I will assume that it's fake until I can prove that it's real." That speaks to just how many fake artworks are out there. All right, let's just skip down a little bit more. The reason for the surge in high-profile cases may be both blatantly obvious. The astronomical amounts of money floating around the art world, the proliferation of websites selling art online, the lack of transparency or regulations on art transactions, and a bit more mysterious or at least unique to the art world with its idiosyncratic unspoken code of conduct, few among us would for a second consider buying a seven-figure house without a thorough inspection and a meticulously worded contract drawn up by our lawyer, yet multi-million dollar artwork are uh, routinely exchanged on the basis of nothing more than a handshake or even a phone call. In the clubby art world, no one wants to risk offending a gatekeeper to prime works. Uh, Somebody says here, you can have all the money in the world, says Judd Grossman, a top litigator who specializes in art, but if you've rocked the boat, if you've been too demanding, the gallery doesn't have to sell it to you. People are more likely to go with the flow. Uh, we'll move on a little bit further. Like I said, it's a pretty long article. Uh, questions about the uh, Omas Basquiat's simmered for years before the very public FBI raid. The narrative the owners provided when shopping the paintings around and which the museum parroted presented their discovery as something of an antiques roadshow on steroids miracle. Basquiat, the story went, had painted the works on cardboard in 1982 when living in dealer Larry uh, Gagosian's, what is he? Uh, Gagosian's uh, basement and sold them directly to television screenwriter Thad Mumford uh, from MASH and The Cosby Show. He sold them for five grand without uh, Gagosian's uh, knowledge. Mumford locked them away in a storage unit for 30 years. When that bill went unpaid, the works were auctioned off in 2012. Two men, William Forrest and Lee uh, Mangin, bought them for a song and later joined in six of the works by a prominent LA lawyer and inv- investor Pierce O'Donnell, proceeded to commission experts to authenticate them. The Basquiat estate, like many others, disbanded its authentication arm a decade ago because of expensive litigation from disgruntled art owners. Uh, one of those experts, though, has since challenged Oma's representation of her evaluation. Jordana Moore uh, Sag- Sagis, um, an associate professor of American art at the University of Maryland College Park, who has written a book on the artist, declined an interview but shared a statement with Rob Report, claiming that her review, for which she was reportedly paid 60 grand, had been confidential and tentative and based exclusively on photographs. She also maintained that she had rejected nine of the works outright and said 11 could be and seven may be legitimate, though she required an in-person examination to be sure. Man, yeah, (laughs) which was never granted. Yeah, I really tried it. Yeah, I'm going to just show some pictures and we're supposed to, and she's supposed to, as an expert, be like, okay, that's cool. I mean, if I'm the person that's buying this thing and I want it to be authenticated and the, um... The expert tells me, oh, all they saw was a, um, was a picture of it. I can't trust that. Yo, you you forking out millions of dollars. Nah, bro, that's, that's, that's not going to work for me. Uh, let's, let's move on a little further here. The FBI moved in before the show's contents could be shipped to Italy for the second leg of the exhibition. Following the seizure, Oma released a statement proclaiming that it was a witness, not a target of any investigation, but the fallout was swift. Within days... Uh, DeGrafft was ousted and the museum handed off the scandals uh, press management to a crisis specialist. Teresa Collington, whose response to Rob report inqu- inquiries was to remain silent. Uh, she did not reply to repeated emails and voicemails. The Bureau's case reportedly includes an affidavit signed by Mumford before his death in 2018, disavowing the story and denying he'd met Basquiat or acquired paintings from him. Where an indictment to be handed down, the verdict might hinge on whether prosecutors could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that any of the parties had invented a false history for the paintings, shopped them around with phony documentation and benefited financially from that deception, such as with museum funds. Wow, and and the fact that the story is so elaborate. See, this is how how people get caught. Not that I'm giving out tips out there on how to fraud the artwork, but man, like when when the story's that elaborate, like you sold it for a song, at one point, and it was in some garage for 30 years. Nah, nah, bruv. It's already <laughs> sounds way shaky. Um, move Moving along here. <laughs> Let's see. The reason why it wasn't a crime... Okay, hold on. Before, so... uh This is a good place to start. Well, but only if you went ahead and took that person's money, that is. So it's only a crime if you went and took that person's money. So Hernandez points to a bizarre situation that came to light in 2010 in which a Mississippi man by the name of Mark Landis was discovered to have painted... Scores of works in the disparate styles of several artists, many of them American Impressionists, and donated them to at least 50 museums over some 20 years, perhaps for the simple pleasure of seeing his work pass muster and hang alongside famous artists. Even after eventually being outed, he was so determined to keep up the ruse that he continued to gift paintings by using aliases such as a Jesuit priest. Landis has never faced prosecution. The reason why it wasn't a crime is that he never got any money for it, Hernandez explains. Landis neither asked for nor received a fee, nor wisely did he take a tax deduction. The feds sometimes nab frosters not for their root misdeed, but for failing to declare the proceeds. For it to be a crime, you have to have done it for financial gain. This guy just showed up, gave them a painting. They assumed it was by someone famous, or they were told it was by someone famous. Uh, We don't put people in prison for that. This is why we're talking about man. A lot of this art stuff is just is so subjective, and it's like I, especially impressionist and like surrealist stuff. It's like, (laughs) like was it done by a legit artist or a third grader? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to badmouth you know you know art artists like that, but. this is you can get away with that kind of stuff. You already have like a basis to to, to uh a foundation to build on. But coming out the block and having like <laughs> doing some of these some of this artwork, if you sell it right, you know, anybody buy it. But then again, like this dude did paint this stuff. So why didn't why didn't he gain recognition for the work that he did? If it was good enough that they thought, man, this could be some stuff that we could hang in our um in our museum. Hey. This guy should get a shot. This guy should get an exhibition. And like, yo, I did this this stuff myself and like, it's just as good. Especially if you make it original. Yeah, you you mimic the style of, you know, pop art or something else uh, or expressionism, but like, I mean, the, the style isn't, um, isn't patented, you know? It's not trademarked by anybody. These are like, uh, somebody may be renowned for a particular style, but you can go ahead and, and paint something in that style and it could be an original work. What do I know? To be sure, the establishment popped into uh, uh, Nodler further on. So, to be sure, the establishment popped into Nadler for a Picasso as comfortably as they dropped by uh, Bergdorf's for a new tie. And the forgery ring shook the art world like no other scandal when it came in light in 2011. Founded in 1846, the gallery supplied the likes of of Andrew Mellon and Henry Clay Fr- Henry Clay Frick and in the early 21st century remained a reliable source for canonical modern artists. But it turned out Nodler's longtime director, Anne Friedman, had sold nearly 40 fakes for an alleged 63 mil. They all came from one source, a woman named Glafria Rosales, who delivered them to the gallery fashionable, uh, gallery's fashionable Upper East Side address in her car. Rosales later confessed to um, concocting the canvas's fever dream of a backstory after mysterious European collector, Mr. X, acquiring them through a well-known art world figure who was close to several abstract expressionists who were happy to personally accept the client's cash and didn't think to record either the transactions or the very existence of of the works themselves. Like the plot in any good soap opera, the scheme later featured a twist, This is what I'm saying. It's always a twist. You gotta go a little too far. This will get you caught. The the twist was that they they named another well-connected intermediary who was also said to be Mr. X's gay lover. But conveniently, or tragically, every character in both tales was by then dead. And the son of Mr. X, now dispersing this trove, demanded complete anonymity to hide his late father's sexuality from their... Uh, conservative clan cue the i roll in the art world there's this um reversal of logic the more incredible the story it, the, <laughs> the more likely people are to accept it this is what's uh this is wow since Thiago uh Piro, Piro, uh how you pronounce this dude's name Pi uh okay we'll go with that a founder of New York art forensics which researches both physical objects and other accompanying documentation for authenticity In addition to Dassault, the deceit ensnared hedge fund manager Pierre Lagrange, whose lawsuit accusing Nodler of offloading a fake uh, Pollock on him, his uh, hired experts found a yellow paint not produced until 1970, 14 years after the artist's death. Unleashed. Dang, that's some good. That's some good forensic work right there. You got him. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Get that guy. Uh, pleaded guilty to wire uh, So, where were we at? 14 years after the artist's death unleashed a torrent of litigation and prompted the gallery's closure in the end Rosell's pleaded guilty to wire fraud money laundering and tax evasion uh, uh, served just 3 months in prison and was ordered to pay $81 million in restitution to her victims. Swearing she was duped Friedman had steadfastly uh, maintained her innocence and was never charged of course not I call the crimes, right? If we thought we had a case we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, we would have. We would have brought it, says Hernandez, who describes the Nodler affair as an extreme, crazy case. Man, there's still so much more to read here, but we'll skip towards the end a little bit, wrapping this up a little bit. In recent decades, the art world has grown exponentially, and hucksters want their share. Enter rakish uh, Inigo Philbrick. Our young swindler with a name straight out of a hard-boiled detective movie. And one of the lar- yeah, Phil his name? Anigo e- Philbrick, yeah, I guess I guess you you spot on there. In one of the largest frauds to beset the industry, uh Philbrick, who'd opened galleries in London's Mayfair and Miami, con investors out of some 86 million, which he reportedly spent on a Sonia uh, Sonya lifestyle to rival those of his ritzy clients. Philbrick was was no outsider. His father is a respected former museum director and his mother is an artist. His mentor was Jay Joplin, the White Cube uh, Gallerist uh, forever linked to the young British artist. Philbrick's many schemes ranged from selling an, uh, selling a, a work in, in fractional shares that added up to more than hundred percent to using art he didn't fully own as collateral for loans. As authorities closed in, he fled to the South he fled to the South Pacific. Uh, where the feds soon caught up with him in June 2020. After he pleaded guilty in New York, he didn't mince words when the judge asked his motive. For the money, your honor. He said, facts. Keeping it real. (laughs) For the money, your honor. Um, You should get some time off for just being so straightforward like that. Nah, nah, nah. We don't want no time off for white collar crime. Uh, Though the criminal phase of his case appears to be over, the extensive civil litigation remains a tangled mess as sharp-elbowed investors maneuver to recover either the artwork or their money, Grossman. The art litigator is involved in four of the disputes. We like to look at it as, as, as following the bouncing ball, Grossman says, adding that in the art world, possession really is nine-tenths of the law. Okay, and uh, we can close this out here where we say so high on the list of warning signs and abuse of previously unknown works by an important artist with murky or hard to verify provenance. Uh, beware a state of a gentleman. <laughs> no catalog, raison compendium of artists output is foolproof and many artists don't even have one, but there's a problem with any collection that comes to light where there are dozens of new artworks by an artist that the world has never known about have no known about, so they caution. Uh, take Jackson Pollock, for example. If there were a new drip painting somebody were to find that would be on the front page of every art section of every newspaper. Now, imagine if someone found 30 of them, 50 of them. It's just not realistic. And there are a lot of people who will look the other way because they might make tens of millions of dollars if that Pollock was real. Hernandez, the federal prosecutor, turned private litigator, advises not limiting your scrutiny to the artwork or its documentation. He reminisces about John DeRay, an East Hampton, New York man who he prosecuted in 2014. Ray's sales pitch to the scores of customers he defrauded consisted of a story about acquiring dozens of Pollocks and de Koonings from the basement of a late friend of the artist's he ultimately admitted the tale was fiction, pleaded guilty to wire fraud, and was sentenced to five years in prison. It shows the value of doing diligence on who you're buying from because John Ray uh, had, a convicting, had, had a conviction for counterfeiting uh, previously. So US currency, uh, uh, counterfeiting U.S. currency, actually, when he was selling his stuff, Hernandez says, appearing to stifle a chuckle. That's what we call in the business a red flag. Yeah, i would say. So this guy is uh, is a little bit of a charmer here and uh, uh he's seen it all. Um look out for Hernandez if you're out there. He's coming for you if you're in the art fraud game. Don't don't do it. <laughs> I don't recommend it uh, particularly for, you know, viewers. I mean, we had some people going to the Orlando Museum here and you know, they couldn't they couldn't uh partake in the, you know, they may probably made a whole day of it, thought they were going to see some Basquiat, and the whole thing had got shut down. So and you're messing with you're messing with people's money. You're messing with with people's experiences, and uh, that's not cool. So interesting, and uh, hopefully they can crack down a lot of the stuff. Before we move on, the last thing uh, for the news section was is, is our book re- recommendation. Uh, this one is called The Dirty South: Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse by Valerie Castle Oliver. So this exhibition catalog chronicles the pervasive visual and sonic parallels in the work of black artists from the southern united states it looks to uh, contemporary southern hip-hop as a portal into the roots and aesthetic legacies that have shaped contemporary art from the 1920s to the present it features multiple generations of both academically trained and outsider artists working in a variety of genres and disciplines including thornton dial allison jenay hamilton Uh, author Jaffa, uh, and and several others. Creating a capacious understanding of Southern expression in visual art, uh, material culture, and music, this richly illustrated volume documents the exhibition's artwork and includes critical essays, poems, art, artist biographies, and an extended bibliography. So check that one out wherever books are sold. And now back to our artist of the day, Shirley Woodson. Born in Pulaski, Tennessee, Shirley Woodson Reed was only three months when her family moved to Detroit, Michigan. As a Detroiter, Woodson connected with her creative energy at an early young age and is still able to vividly recall the excitement and wonder she encountered in her kindergarten art classroom. The art bug bit Woodson early, she she says. Uh, My first recollection that art was of and of any interest to in me was really in kindergarten. I remember the art room so vividly. It was a downstairs room. I loved being there. In seventh grade, she was selected to participate in a weekly special arts training at the Detroit Institute of Arts. There, she would go on to take classes each Saturday through high school. It was sort of my favorite place to be. Whenever I left home, I wanted to go to the museum. Though neither of her parents was an artist, her father worked for Ford. Her mother was a uh, homemaker, she would tell you that their encouragement, however, strengthened every choice she made. Woodson followed that initial spark through her public education in Detroit and later at Wayne State University, where she earned a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in 1958 and a Master's of Fine Arts in 65. In between the WSU degrees, she pursued graduate studies in painting and art history at the School of Art Institute in Chicago. Woodson also credits art specifically a small still life that she painted for her late younger brother, Curtis, for connecting her to the love of her life, Edsel Reed. In 1965, Reed, an art collector, saw her work hanging in her brother's home and insisted on meeting the artist. He purchased multiple pieces and developed even greater interest in Woodson, the woman. Two years later, in the summer of 67, Woodson and Reed were married, and in addition to continuing a shared love of art, the couple also began a family. Becoming parents to two sons, Carrie and Singor Reed. Singor will make a special appearance actually later on in the show, so put a pin in that one. Edsel, who was also a jazz radio host for a number of years on WDET-FM, died in 2000. Woodson Reed uh, spent more than 26 years teaching art and guiding the arts curriculum for high school Highland Park schools and now defunct Highland Park Community College. She later served as Detroit Public School Supervisor of Fine Art from 1992 to 2008 and also worked as an adjunct art teacher at Wayne State University in the mid-1990s. Woodson debuted her work in a show of Michigan Artists at the Detroit Institute of Arts in 1960, the same year she started teaching in the Detroit Public Schools. As an art educator, Woodson served as a mentor to the community while she actively painted. In her role as supervisor of art education in the public schools, she taught in various schools throughout the city. In 1974, Woodson co-founded the Michigan chapter of the National Conference of Artists, founded in, which was founded in 1959. The conference is the nation's oldest arts organization focused on nurturing, developing, and promoting opportunities for Black visual artists. With a network across the country, uh, NCA also connects artists to educators, historians, uh, critics, c- collectors, curators, gallery owners, uh, a bunch of them are also members. Woodson, who retired from public education in 2008, sits on the NCA's executive board and continues to lead the Michigan chapter as its president. For the last six decades, Shirley Woodson has worked to tell stories of the African-American experience through her art. Last year, all the pieces finally fell together as Woodson was named the 2021 Kresge Arts, and Detroit Eminent Artist, the 13th metro area artist to receive the award, one of Detroit's most coveted cultural prizes. More on this on this later. So we got, what's that, two pins now? Put another, put another pin in there. A little bit about her style. As a painter whose career spans six, six decades, Woodson's signature style includes blending bold colors with precise yet wildly expressive technique, whether she is using a brush or experimenting with stencil and spray paints. Her paintings and collages are layered with references to a love of folklore, cultural iconography, and elements of nature. Human figures often appear faceless, a purposeful choice by Woodson to draw a viewer closer. In 1966, she received the prestigious uh, McDowell Fellowship, she used this opportunity to explore new ideas and techniques, including collage, a medium that continues to provide a counterpoint and uh, complement her uh, her other paintings. To spot one of her works, it, it's impossible to look at any work by Shirley Woodson, a painting or collage, and not think about the colors first. They're overwhelming. She's bold about how she uses colors and her choices are, are always beautiful. Shirley is Purposeful in her depiction of Black women and the Black family in her work, um, and and I've, I've I appreciate that since I've been exploring her stuff. The intense colors are her way of showing how much she understands and cares about the importance of placing African American heritage and strength at the center and being and being unapologetic about the choice. You see it over and over in her work because the colors also represent who Shirley is as a person, not just as an artist. Family. Community, Black womanhood are what she draws from as a foundation and what she invites others to appreciate uh, in her work. Complementary to other African-American artists, Woodson's work reflects her identity as a Black individual and a woman. The female figures in her latest exhibition convey her own identity of starting a new journey and its new discoveries. In addition to painting, Woodson channels her creativity through other art forms, including photography, drawing, and lately, digital printmaking. Today's Ekphrastic poem is a retrospective on contemporary events of the late 60s, early 70s on the African continent. As a reminder, here's how this works. This is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the Ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check the show notes. There should be a link. There you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discussed. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up Woodson's Fight into Egypt number 1. It's a 36 by 48 inch oil on linen painting that she completed in 1970. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. As a young boy, I spent a great deal of time at my grandmother Celia's home, a corner house on San Juan in Southwest Detroit. Above her bed hung my mother's painting, Flight Into Egypt Number One. In the painting, a young man appears to be jumping as if he were blocking a volleyball over a net. The boy's back is facing the viewer with both arms raised and his left knee leads his momentum up and forward. The boy's brightly painted yellow shirt and cherry red shorts make this a playful painting that I always enjoyed seeing whenever I visited my grandmother. Although this painting, as the marquee work of art in the house, brought me a great deal of comfort, I always wondered about my mother's treatment of the of the background. I always thought it was a curious pose because the painting is absent of any sort of ball or net. Behind the figure of the boy, animals seem to be walking upright alongside human figures who aren't quite human. I always assumed the animals were hairs based on the shape of their ears and snub short tails. All the figures are seen in profile as they appear to be walking to the right as though they are in a march or procession. A robust white bird hovers over the figures to the upper left and a crouching blue rabbit rests in the lower right corner of the composition. With a horizontal blue line resting atop my mother's signature a beautiful red arcing line keeps the eye from falling off the canvas in the lower left corner the juxtaposition of the seemingly playful figure against a backdrop of a completely unrelated parade of figures forever puzzled me where was the volleyball where were the children on the other team and why were they not all on a beach with splashing blue water what were bunny rabbits doing walking around in the background? Why did my grandmother choose this painting to hang above her bed? What did mommy intend for this painting to be? Moreover, what did she intend for this piece to do? As I would learn later, the answer to some of my questions lay a continent away in the choices of Lieutenant Colonel Obam Ajuku. He declared the secession of three states of Nigeria's southeastern region in late May 1967 under the name the Republic of Biafra. With the blessings and gifts of ammunition from the British government, the Republic of Nigeria declared war on the newly declared republic as fighting broke out in July starting a full-scale civil war. Despite several victories early. Biafran forces quickly began to buckle as Nigeria penetrated the Igbo heartland over the next two years. This conflict, which claimed thousands of military casualties on both sides, crippled the Biafran economy as its oil fields had been seized. The most decisive strategic move made by the Nigerians was to impose a full-scale economic blockade on the Biafran region. It may have been the single most destructive decision made in West African history. Without its primary source of revenue, the newly formed republic could not afford to import a diversity of food and resources to its people. Local farmers and fishermen were also limited in their ability to provide enough food for millions of people. By the summer of 1968, Igbo mothers began emerging from the deep bush carrying starving children. By the time Biafras surrendered to Nigeria in early 1970, well over two million people had died from malnutrition. Once I was finally able and mature enough to ask my mother about this painting, her explanation and deep connections to the continent surprised me. Flight into Egypt number one was the first painting my mother completed after the Biafran genocide. She was in a state of shock after so many missionaries and priests stood by as innocent black people were murdered persecuted, starved, and abandoned as a result of European-sponsored war on African soil. This was a protest painting. This painting was about humanity or the loss thereof. What I had long thought was just a boy jumping for joy was actually a boy lying on the ground, dead. My mother used many photographs published in the New York Times for this painting, and one of them was a bird's-eye-view picture of a boy lying in the street after having been murdered. The economic blockade had stopped the biafran importation of seafood and fish from Norway. Other meats such as chicken, beef, and pork were usually used only for special occasions and were generally very expensive. Thus, millions of civilians suffered from the acute protein deficiency disease known as kwashiorkor. This diet had been reduced to almost 100% starch. This was why my mother decided to paint the background a milky white color. The figures in the background had come from the tomb of Nebamun, where artists created images of large processions of people carrying agricultural offerings, such as hares and wheat, to the wealthy Egyptian accountant. Joining this procession after his death, the soul of the Biafran boy was traveling to meet the ancestors in the afterlife. This painting was about my mother reaching out to the motherland of all civilization through her creative practice in an effort to reclaim Recodify and reassimilate the motherland's source energy with purpose and intent. Both the boy and my mother were running to the past for salvation and safety. At my grandmother's house, I always sat on the floor at the foot of her bed, equally mesmerized by the painting and the intricacies of making my own transformer toy figures using markers, crayons, cardboard, masking tape, and tin foil. Looking back, I am so grateful for having had the privilege of creating toys beneath the beautiful painting of a Biafran boy playing volleyball. I mentioned before that Shirley Woodson was named the 2021 Kresge artist, uh, Detroit Eminent Artist. In the tradition of the award, several artists, former students, and community leaders have a, an opportunity to submit write-ups that explore selected pieces from the awardee. In this particular case, a son sees best. Singor Reed is the one who reflects on his assumptions about the painting and the discovery of its true representation. At the end, like the experience of many art consumers, he found a way to reconcile the two paradigms, making it his own. Singor actually is a standout young artist himself and began to gain national recognition around 2004. Uh, like his mother before him, he will go on to study at Detroit's uh, Wayne State University and later an art educator in the public school system. Uh, the son, Singor, is actually the 2009 Kresge Arts and Detroit Fellow uh, awarded for his work in visual arts. So a little bit about the Kresge Eminent Artist Award. It's a $50,000, $50, no-strings-attached prize. Each year, a new panel of local artists and arts professionals, uh, they're convened and undertakes an, an, an extensive review process. Since its inception more than a decade ago, the Kresge Eminent Artist Award has elevated artists for their contributions to both their art, art form and the cultural community of metropolitan uh, Detroit along with the 50k in prize each year the kresge eminent artist is honored with a short film uh which debuted during a virtual celebration uh which last year was a virtual celebration and because of covid you know uh and through the creation of a monograph uh, the kresge foundation publishes the book and distributes it to the public at no cost so that's what i just read from uh, it's a pretty extensive book, has uh, a ton of her, her art displayed there and testimonials and, and stuff. Uh, so I would recommend checking that out. Uh, Woodson's life and work clearly and thoroughly reflect the award criteria, including a distinguished record of high-quality work, professional achievement, and significant impact in the arts, paired with generously sharing one's talent, uh, expertise, and contributions to the growth and vibrancy of Detroit's cultural environment. She is, hands down, she probably should have gotten this award a long time ago. Uh, a couple words from the artist. Uh, upon receiving the award, Woodson noted that, I know many of the artists who have been selected over the years. I'm thrilled to be among amongst them. And, and to see that Kresge is continuing to genuinely support all that art adds to the community. We're so fortunate in Detroit to have an arts community that's never stopped." So what is it, what's it looking like out there for Shirley Woodson in the market? Joe, so just days after absorbing the shock of, of, of receiving the 2021 Kresge, uh, Woodson received another surprising phone call, an invitation from the Detroit artist market uh, to headline a solo show. Uh, this was in 2021. Uh, She goes on to say you work and work and work and then suddenly so much happens at once. Woodson has been featured in over 30 solo exhibitions and her paintings are included in more than 20 permanent collections across the U.S., including, of course, Detroit Institute of Arts and Charles H. Wright Museum of African-American History, also in Detroit, uh, the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, that's in New York, the Museum of National Center for African-American Artists in Boston. Hampton University Museum of Art, uh, which is an HBCU, and the Hirshhorn Museum in D.C. At the age of 86, currently, Woodson divides her time between squirting through old works, adding touches to a new ongoing acrylic series, uh, focused on her vessels in nature, and slowly reflecting upon the life choices that led her to this moment. She says, in a sense, it's like I've been handed a blank canvas. She, uh, she added, I'm, I'm looking at everything again like a dream, I'm excited to see where it leads. In her artist statement after receiving the Kresge, she she says that paintings are my diaries, drawings are my prose, collage is my poetry, assemblages are my dialogues. All the threads of my life have been about art and its ability to connect and create ways of showing the beauty, the history, and the necessity of all art but particularly black art. This journey has been my life and it continues to move me. I'm still creating and discovering. Wow. Well said. Uh, this was fascinating. It's great to get to know Shirley a little bit better. And I'm glad you took that ride with me for this and other artwork we discussed. Please visit the website, darwindarker.com backslash frastic. It's where you can find all of this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show, please Rate, review, leave feedback. Um, tell your friends about it uh, on all your socials. Uh, speaking of which, we're on Twitter, Instagram at the Ekfrastic. On YouTube, just type in Ekfrastic Podcast. We show up somewhere in there, <laughs> and uh, we'll be glad to uh, to do this again next time. Until then, I've been Darwin Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to the Ekfrastic.